Yeah, 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 yeah. Hey guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. The New York Times reported this week that there are three or four big deal books coming out in the next few months that will address Donald Trump's final days in the White House, how his presidency fell apart, and how he lost the election. In the race toward publication among these several books, each of them about the same topic, the authors and publishers alike are voicing their anxiety about getting scooped and about learning about learning suddenly that there's yet another book by another major journalist that's going to be coming out in the same month and they're going to have to compete with that one too. In other words, they're afraid that one of these other authors will leak the gossip that they themselves have secured with their own sort of persistent legwork. As a result of these authors' anxiety, it's looking like most of us who are interested in reading those books won't actually have to do it because the authors are publishing their most salacious excerpts preemptively in major magazines, or they're, or they're teasing little sexy details on social media and, and, and leaking the juicy stuff with promises of more to come. And, and this is new to me, because I, I've been going through a kind of personal change over the past few months where suddenly, for the first time in my life, I want to read a lot about politics and about history, and to a lesser but still notable degree, I even have a, a very mild interest in, like, getting involved in local affairs. It occurs to me that all throughout my life, whenever somebody has was sermonizing at, at a party or a dinner table or a bar or a lectern about how you know how the country is going to shit, the Senate's fucking things up, the president is an idiot, political unrest, whatever, whatever. Anytime I have ever heard that happening, no matter if the lecturer was a contemporary or an elder or a layman or an expert, I have always just nodded along, listening either attentively or with a sort of courteous disinterest, but I have never really had the balls to to like present my take on the political moment, to really opine, because I don't really have informed opinions, and I, I'm, I know if I even try to do that, someone is going to show me up and poke holes in my argument. But lately, since over the past few months, I've, I've just been listening here and there to like interviews with charming, knowledgeable speakers who know how to break these concepts down for me, you know, podcasts with a political tilt, also, you know, reading essays about art and historical figures. Because of all this reading, I feel like I'm finally knowledgeable enough to take part in those conversations. Like, I've got at least a tenuous grasp on some of these topics that come up all the time. Like, fucking, I... I know, I know what the filibuster is now. That is when a, a senator prevents the Senate from voting on a piece of legislation by just debating it endlessly. Because in the Senate, in, 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 in the Senate proceedings, there is an absence of something called cloture, which is kind of spelled like clitoris, except with different letters. Cloture is a process for ending a debate and forcing the debaters to vote on whatever's being debated. I have been hearing the word filibuster in and out, up and down, every day for months, and I, it did not once occur to me to Google, like, what this word means. But anyway, I, I've learned a lot about politics and history over the past few months, and more importantly than just brushing me up on how American political dynamics have worked in the past, my reading into history has given me a context for better understanding the issues of the moment. In some cases, I've got strong opinions on these issues, but in most cases, I don't. I do, however, have something to say about them. On the topic 
of of whether or not we should get involved in foreign foreign conflicts for instance there is not a single foreign conflict going on right now on which I can voice a strong opinion, because I'm just not that fucking well studied on anything that's happening. But what I can say about our engagement in foreign conflicts, given my reading, is two things. Thing number one. The downfall of the Soviet Union can be largely attributed to the fact that, since they were so concerned with, like, broadening their empire, with accumulating more and more chunks of domain in distant lands, after a while, something always happened in one of those distant lands where they then had to send a bunch of troops to defend that distant chunk of land. And it is not cheap to clothe, arm, transport, and feed thousands of soldiers in, in like six different directions at the same time. So you could say, all right, that is a historical precedent, a kind of universal example of one of the major dangers of getting too like zealously involved in foreign affairs. Thing number two though, after the First World War and the Treaty of Versailles, which mandated that all of German military brass had to walk through a, a, a long ballroom and systematically sniff the finger of every world leader they had fucked with. President Woodrow Wilson went to the Senate and he was like, we should join this League of Nations thing, which is going to help us to prevent another world war, because this last one was, was, was not was bad. So he pitches it to the Senate and the Senate was like, bro, Woody. You know I got nothing but love for you, I appreciate what you do for us, and I think it's cool that you want to make sure millions more people don't die in a global conflict, but look, we got bigger problems right now. Women are trying to vote, and people are trying to drink beer. Fast forward then into the 1930s, and President Franklin Roosevelt was like, he goes to the Senate, and he's like, we should stop sending weapons to tyrants because they are terrorizing smaller countries, so we need to put an embargo on sending aid to countries that are known aggressors. To which the Senate responded, Yo, Wheels, listen, you know I got nothing but love for you, and I appreciate everything you do for us, I appreciate you, but listen, all lives matter. So instead of embargoing weapons that we send to aggressors, we're gonna stop sending weapons to all countries. Peace on Earth and shit. And FDR was like, What the fuck? That's gonna make things worse. Aggressors already have weapons, we're just trying not to give them more weapons, and the little guys need it, because they're trying to defend themselves from all lives matter, bro. So then, a while later, in the 1930s, FDR goes to the Senate and he's like, Hey, looks like we've got a fascist in Russia, a fascist in Germany, a fascist in Spain, a fascist in Italy. Europe is gonna explode. We should probably get involved. And the Senate was like, nah, they'll work it out. Then, you know, Japanese bomb Pearl Harbor, World War II happens, and there is a fairly large consensus that World War II could have been outright prevented, or at least abated, if the Senate had just consented to our being involved in the League of Nations back in, like, 1919. Anyways, that's a, that, is, that is a circuitous way of making my point. But my point is that, while I don't have strident opinions about every foreign military engagement that we have going on, I don't feel that I need to have an opinion. I don't feel that you need to have an opinion. What I'm thinking is that it is enough to maybe just have, have an understanding of the history of our foreign engagements, the patterns that are enacted whenever we spring for it, and occasioned by Independence Day. That's where this little episode is heading. Because what I've learned is that, yes, I have something to say, and I need to get better at saying it. Saying it gently, saying it with a tone that reflects that this is just what I've been led to believe, but 
saying it nonetheless. And I will tell you why. What I noticed now among my peers, and what I didn't realize was a curious habit about the political discourse I always heard growing up, is that nobody really has a positive thing to say about where the country is headed. It's like the beginning of, of uh, a tale of two cities. It's the best of times, it's the worst of times, everyone's going to hell, everyone's going to heaven. And then at the end of that paragraph of listing all these contradictions, he says, it was a time very much like our own. Because it's true, every generation thinks that theirs is the moment in which everything is falling apart. Everybody wants to talk about how the country is going to shit, and they want to give you their particular spin on why it's going to shit. And I think that the reason they want to give you that spin is because they feel a bit small. And it is empowering to be able to articulate the ins and outs of a complicated structure that ensnares you. It shows that while perhaps you are, are not physically any great formidable specimen, it shows that you hold within you an intelligence of such galactic sprawl as to encompass the world and all of its workings. So what do they do, these cynics, these proselytizers? They pinch their brow, very often they adopt a kind of dark smirk and like a morbid chuckle as they're talking, and then they tell you who the villains are. They tell you how you're getting fucked, how we are getting fucked. They're talking about the people and the institutions who have like created a system that has kept them from becoming who they want to be, and kept you! from becoming who you want to be. Because ho ho, go ahead, let yourself believe that you're happy and fulfilled. You're not, you're a sheep. You're so brainwashed you don't even know how brainwashed you are. Like that kind of political discourse, whenever you hear someone talking like that, that is the portrait of a sad person. And the reason they're doing this is because when we expound on precisely how we are getting fucked and who's doing the fucking, it is a kind of resistance. It shows that the saboteurs in government might be keeping us down, but they're not keeping us blind. I say that a little tongue-in-cheekily, but it, it is true, it's a form of resistance, but sometimes it's taken to an extreme. Sometimes that kind of negativity, that kind of cynicism, it's a way of, of, of winning without having to do anything. As a matter of fact, it's a way of, of twisting your reality so that your inaction becomes the path to victory, the sign of strength. Like when someone says, oh, I'm gonna show you what I think about climate change by not recycling by not getting vaccinated, not shortening my shower, or getting a more fuel-efficient car. Which reminds me, dude! I've got a super conservative regular who comes to the bar, his wife always joins him, and she's actually like way more scathingly political than he is. She always gets herself a glass of red wine, but he normally drinks Coke, like three Cokes in pretty quick succession. And so he came in like a couple months ago and he sat down and when I saw him, I, I brought a can of Coke up from the cooler and I held it up and I kind of raised my brow like, hey, do you want this? But he said no. And he did like a decisive move w with his hand, something like, it was a gesture like he was tossing confetti, but it also had the abruptness of like a karate chop, except it was going upwards, which karate chops don't do. Like imagine, if you imagine how Frankenstein might masturbate with like a staggered up and down, that's what he did with his hand. And so he tells me no, he's done drinking Coke. He says that the company has gotten too political. I think the issue is that the Coke had come out saying that they were opposed to George's voting laws. And I was like, okay, it sounds good. So what would you like to drink? And I swear to God, I swear to you on everything I own. He looked around the bar, considered the question for a moment, and then said, I'll have a Sprite. And I was like, should I tell this man that Sprite is a Coke product? But I didn't. I just served him the can and he cracked it open. And while holding forth for the next 30 or 40 minutes about the ubiquity of fake news, I knew that I could trust this man because he was criticizing that fake news while drinking in hearty gulps by a green imitation of the real thing.
Most people who sermonize about politics, they know that most people don't actually read up on the issues that they're, like, sermonizing about. In fact, most of the people who sermonize about politics are not themselves particularly well-read on the issues that they're sermonizing about. But they do know that they simply will not be challenged if they speak with a certain degree of conviction, if they speak at a certain volume. They know that the person across the table isn't even likely to contribute to the conversation, let alone challenge them. But if you do contribute to that conversation, if you do respond to their spittle-flecked, red-eyed, chest-puffed sermon with some remark that reflects in however benign a way that you have done a little bit of reading, that you're listening to a spattering of podcasts, that you're savvy on the news, it will keep that person from being inflated with all of their own hot air. And, and to, to run a little bit down the hallway with this metaphor, a person who gets filled up with the uncontested hot air of their own indignation, they begin to levitate and they float into the sky where their head punctures a cloud and they wear it like a wreath. And there's no bringing them back down to earth and reality at that point. They just kind of float up there. It's the oldest thing that we are advised to do as citizens and it's a bit of a fucking chore, but what I'm saying here essentially is that it is important to do some reading on the issues. But my intention with that earlier bit about like the several Trump books that are all coming out at once is to show that like, I get it. <laughs> I understand why that sort of reading can seem hopelessly fraught with complications. Four major books by major authors on the same topic will be released at the same time, and each one will claim to be the definitive account, the most accurate, the most incisive, the most readable. So which one, to which one do you dedicate 10 or 12 hours of your reading time? And also, how do you process that shit when you, when whatever is in that book, there's going to be another book six months later saying that it's all bullshit. And there's going to be talking heads on, on, on TV telling you that it's all bullshit. But I think one of the things that discourages people from wanting to read about this shit, apart from the fact that it is scrotum-twistingly tedious at times, is the fact that, for one thing, it is incredibly self-referential. Like, if you haven't read a newspaper in a while, and you pick one up from today, there's bound to be, like, eight or nine items on the front page alone that you are totally in the dark about. But, I, you know, something I've recommended on the podcast before, if you, if you just read the front page of a newspaper every day for one week, even if that means you're gonna just drag your eyes through the articles where, like, you don't know the names of the people involved, you don't know anything about, like, the events that they're referring to, just do it. Just do that. And by the end of that week, you will be completely caught up. Especially because the actual news of the day is only ever recounted in like the first two paragraphs of an article. The last three paragraphs of every article are just context. So if for seven days you're reading so many dozens of paragraphs of context, you will be one contextualized motherfucker by the end of that week. And then you can comfortably speak up about these things. And what I was trying to communicate earlier you know, speaking up doesn't mean being confrontational. Here's an example of the kind of speaking up that I'm in encouraging. Rendered in dialogue, a one-man show. <laughs> this country is falling apart. Believe me, I know. Meh. I don't think it's falling apart. Well, it is. Everybody in Congress drinks Pepsi. They're all in the pockets of big tuna, industrial fishermen. Vaccines give you gills. Have you seen Biden's bald spot? Because it's getting bigger. You know he doesn't have a tongue either. Have you ever seen Biden stick his tongue out? He wants a trillion dollars for infrastructure. You know why? Pyramids. 
Joe Biden wants to build a pyramid in Delaware. Everyone knows it. Obama wasn't born in Kenya. Don't be a sheep. He was born in Egypt. Emotep. That's his real name. And now his legacy lives on. Have you wondered why all those aliens are showing up suddenly? Pyramids. Jill Biden shaves her bush in the shape of a pentagram. Everybody knows it. I don't know. I've just been reading about Jimmy Carter's presidency, actually. Jimmy Carter? He's another one. Jimmy Carter builds houses for the poor? Sure. Did you know they're all shaped like cones? Can't build a house. My cousin lives in one of those Jimmy Carter houses. You know he put a door in the ceiling? Fucking idiot. He's a hundred years old. Have you ever been in one of those Jimmy Carter houses? The refrigerator's flush. People say homelessness is out of control in this country. Well then stop letting Jimmy Carter build houses! Now I realize that this kind of dialogue can be exhausting. But it doesn't have to be confrontational. All you have to demonstrate in the presence of a, a vicious political cynic is that you are a curious person, you have learned things, and once you have made that clear, you will find that people are not quite so aggressive around you with their ideas because they never know what you are or are not knowledgeable about. To add his two cents here about the importance of speaking up on political issues, I'm going to toss the mic to Samuel R. Delaney, a science fiction writer who's speaking here from the documentary Polymath by Fred Barney Taylor, talking about how he reacted as a professor when he found that his students were never speaking up to answer the questions that he asked. And, then, and then I suddenly had a realization, I am not giving these kids what they need. Right. You know, as a teacher, it's my fault. When I went into the class the next, the next, next day, I, said, I, I started it off, I said, all right, I have a question for you. What is two and two? Nobody raises their hand, as usual. Right. And I said, come on, I know you know what the answer to two and two is. Right? And then I said, I said, look, I, I said, don't you realize that every time you do not answer a question, you're learning something. You're learning how to make do with what you got. You're learning how not to ask for a raise. When you, you know, when you're learning you know, how, how to take it. That's not good. Right. It's not good. So, from now on, whenever I ask, ask a question, everybody's got to put their hand up. I don't care whether you know the answer or not. You have to put your hand up. And I said, and I said, and I'm going to call on you, and if you don't know the answer, I want you to say it nice and clear. I don't know the answer to that, Professor Delaney, but I would like to hear what that person has to say. We'll pass it on. And so this is what we started doing. And I said, whenever I ask a question, everybody put their hand up. I don't care whether you know or not. You know, and this is how we deal with it. You know, you, you need to teach people that they are important enough. They're important enough to say what they have to say. It, it's just very important. And that's how you fight evil. That's how you fight evil. You have to make them know that they are important enough and they're strong enough to do that. And, and if you don't do that, then you're not doing the right thing as a teacher. been listening to the Thousand Movie Project podcast. And if you like the show and plan on sticking around, you'll be hearing a lot more of it in weeks to come, since for at least a while, I'm going to be working on the podcast as a kind of part-time job. And if you'd like to support the show and me in that respect, you can check out the Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash Thousand Movie Project, where there are four tiers of rewards, or if you'd like a free way to support the show, 
you can go to iTunes or Apple Podcast and leave a favorable review. I just saw there's like 34 positive reviews and each one bolsters our standing in the charts and helps to attract more listeners. It bolsters visibility. So that would be a tremendous help. And if you point me toward your positive review, I'll be sure to send you one of the rewards that you might otherwise get for becoming a Patreon donor. Yes, if you leave a positive review for Thousand Movie Project Podcasts on iTunes, send it my way through Instagram or the website, and I will send you a handwritten doodlesome thank you note. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you.